Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello. Hey there. How are you doing? I'm okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what my next move is in the publishing, in the, in the exciting world of late capitalist publishing. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what my, what my next move is. Um, not that Recycling Made for Death is completely wrapped up, but we did just turn in, didn't we, Amber, those last edits. It, there might be another round of copy edits, maybe, but we have to create an index, definitely. And then, you know, that'll be out in the spring, but it's time for me to be working on my next move. So, it's exciting. so that's what's on my mind. And I, I have some ideas, but I won't share them yet. But every time I do, I change my mind or something happens and I'm like, mm. um, but I have two projects in mind. And so, so it's exciting. It's exciting. Um, I have, I have a, I have one, but we can talk later that I feel like, Ooh. I feel like we've talked about, but so it's probably okay. also on your mind. That's but awesome. I have something that I feel like would be cool to hear your opinion on. I love it. I love it. So today we're doing our November Patreon supporter Q&A. So we have okay. some fun questions from our supporters. And as always, thank you all for supporting the podcast. We literally could not do it without you. I, ha- I have my Google at the ready because you never know. Yeah, I, I never. Mean, yeah, I, we, you know, Jordan, but I don't know what's going to be. So I'm like, what? Wait, what text? And sometimes things are Googleable and sometimes they are not. I'm also in my office, so I can pull books out as well. So I also will say I did not have a, I collated them, but didn't really read them because busy. (laughs) So there'll be a surprise to both of us. Yeah, because Jordan, I didn't ask how you're doing. How are you doing? Good. I presented yesterday morning to a European textiles conference. So it was early. They very nicely allowed me to go last. So it was like 4, 4.30 their time, but it was, um, well, part of the issue, I'm glad I showed up early because they didn't take into account uh, daylight savings time. And oh, so no. They told me 8.30, but it was actually 7.30. Oh, and I'm just my happy I showed up at 7 to watch Good. the other talks. But I actually went at 7.30. So, but Good. it was fine. All went Good. well and good feedback and stuff like that. So, Oh, congrats. That's but, awesome. Yeah. And then just preparing for ASOR next week. So that will be fun. Good to see friends and present and all that good stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's lovely. It's good. You know, it helps that I made this part of my dissertation. So I'm killing two birds with one stone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. It's always good to kill two birds with one stone for anybody working on a dissertation. Anything that you're working on, make it um, serve two purposes in in any way that you can. And um, this is this is something that anybody who's already multitasking. Maybe has two jobs or a kid or two and a job. <laughs> you already know it, um, but you, you want to multitask in those ways. If you don't have these things, then please ponder the profundity of your work um, yes. extensively and take your time to perfectionistically rewrite and thoughtfully craft everything, which is beautiful, but it's not something that that um, we all have the time to do. So. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, but yeah, otherwise good. It's just scary that it's mid-November almost already and ah yeah yeah it's so true it's so true but let's get into these questions okay excellent Marissa asks and this this was perfect in the spirit of our own stuff everything in our faces holidays later this month oh stuff Mm -hmm. everything in our faces holidays later this month I get it oh it's about food Food. I'm there I'm there for this question I'm there for this I haven't eaten today, so I'm excited. Now I'm hungry. Um, What feast celebrations do the ancient Egyptians have? What kinds of food and drink would they have enjoyed? What was included or forbidden? Oh, who was included or forbidden to join? This is fun. There's so many festivals and holidays. Yeah, so many. And it's funny, I said that I'm in my library and I have access to my books and I was just organizing my library. Amber would be so proud. Oh. I actually like took things off the shelves and moved things around and I got and I'm getting rid of a lot of books. So anybody who knows oh. where I live, come by and the front bench is filled with books. I will pop by. You can come by. Yeah, pop by. Um, some doubles, some just like I don't want that anymore. It's old. But 
I found in my library, and I just was able to lean over and grab uh, the Pharaoh's Kitchen, Recipes from oh. Ancient Egypt's Enduring Food Traditions by Magda Mehdawi and Amr Hussein. And I think it's AUC Press, it is. And and it's lovely. It's got all of the different um, feasts, like whether it was a formal state-led feast, a local, regional, or city-specific feast, a personal feast, um, religious for a particular god, agricultural, like when the Nile floods its banks, when it, it recedes, when it's harvest, when it's plowing, um, and funerary feasts. And yeah. it's, um, you know, it's the occasions and then what kinds of things you want to eat. And um, you can hear me turning the pages of the books right now. But who doesn't want a little pickled palm tree pith Ooh. that serves six? Which is <laughs> small palm tree pith. I don't know where to get small palm tree pith, but we could ask. Slice like Is that like hearts of palm? Medium. I guess. I don't know. And I then do like medium those. onion sliced, one cup red wine, eight garlic cloves whole, one tablespoon salt, one half teaspoon chili, two thin slices of fresh ginger. Mix all ingredients in a glass jar and leave for two days. <laughs> Strain and serve. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot that one could say. So roasted yam, crocodile date loaves. Um, there's, there's all kinds of awesome things in here. So... I guess we got to make some duck and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so yeah, obviously they were having a lot of feasts and festivals. Um, you can look these up and, and I think, you know, I, it was just Dia de los Muertos. So Day of the Dead, they would have um, yeah. beautiful feasts of the valley where they would go to their ancestors' graves and have a, have a feast um, there. So very similar to Dia de los Muertos. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of, you know, I guess, depending on where you are, within wealth wise you maybe would have more meat or more fish or something like this versus more veggies just as we as things are scaled based based off your income and all that kind of stuff yeah so every yeah at the end of each week there would be a a festival or a, or a holiday a day off or something like this right 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 and and in Dira medina for example you get these texts that talk about these guys saying, I need a day off work. I've got to go brew the beer for the big, you know, the big party 10-day festival. Mm -hmm. So it does seem to be that there was a weekly, every 10 days, blow off steam. Everyone gets kind of drunk and hangs out by the fire and dances and sings and, and all of these things that people do. Um, and that's just your, you know, your local village life mm -hmm. at Dural Medina. We can imagine that that happened everywhere in every household. Yeah. When you mentioned beer, so um, Marissa asked about drinks that were being had. So probably predominantly beer versus wine. Wine was more of a luxury um, goods. But if you were rich enough, obviously wine as well. But yeah, yeah, lots of beer. Um, I know for certain festivals, they would dye it red and stuff for, you know, festivals of drunkenness to please Hathor. Right. Uh, and so for, for these more religiously toned festivals, were certain people allowed to participate or... Like for the Festival of Drunkenness, for example, was everyone allowed to come get drunk and fall asleep in the temple on the porch, as Betsy Bryan has argued? Or, you know, was it pre the priestly priests and their families or, you know, who was participating? I think this is one of those perennial questions that we can never answer, which is super frustrating. And I know you knew this when you asked it, um, that I was going to say, we don't know. And I think the the question is also answered differently through time, that mm -hmm. you would have a different answer in the pre-dynastic or pre-pre-dynastic and Neolithic times versus what you would have in the Old Kingdom versus Middle Kingdom and New and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, society does seem to become more um, open with more people included in a ruling elite as time goes on. And, and so you would argue that more people are part of festivals, mm -hmm. um, even state festivals, than you know, in the 19th dynasty, then we're allowed in the 18th dynasty and in the 26th dynasty, then we're allowed in the, in the 20, you know, 21st or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but it's, you know, these questions of access are always difficult and there are ways to try to approach them, but it's not, it's not easily done with the mm -hmm. information that we have at hand. The kinds of things I would suggest using would be like, you know, if a festival happened in a column court, how many people fit into this column court? What are the sight lines mm -hmm. like? 
Um, you know, what, what's your potential audience for this space? And then compare it to other spaces outside the temple and in front of the pylon. Um, but differential access is a part of every party. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> every party, even like if it's your home Thanksgiving party, uh-huh. does, does your parent invite or make you come early to help cook? Um, do you get to be the prodigal son who rolls in late and doesn't have to help cook and just gets to enjoy things? Um, are you, um, are you a favored guest member who knows they can come half an hour early for a little tete-a-tete with the, Uh with the special hosts? You know, every party has a hierarchy, whether we openly admit it or not. And these things need to be purposefully built down, broken down if you want things to be non-hierarchical, but access is everything. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, looking yeah. at a, this book. Even has a recipe for beer, you guys. Oh wow! Um, loaf of barley bread, one liter water, lupine bean concentrate to taste, lupine. and you soak the bo- lupine. I, I, yeah, lupine beans. You, the ones, the little yellow ones you get on the side of the street as a snack. Oh, that's what they're including. <laughs> and you soak the bread in water for a day. You strain. You place it in the sun for another day until it dries. You soak the bread again for five hours, strain, store it in a warm place until it rises, and then add the lupine bean concentrate for color and tart taste, then serve. Um, I think if you're going to make it, remember this book is written by by Muslims, and so I imagine to make it alcoholic, you need to let it rest a couple more days. Get that fermentation get going. Exactly, exactly. I have to say that yeah. sounds disgusting. Um, it does, actually. And we yeah. do have to remember Egyptian beer was probably kind of chunky. Not yeah. like our nice, you know, thin uh, um, beer. So, but I guess better yeah. than dysentery water. But if you're straining through cloth, which That's I imagine true. they That's were true. doing, then yeah. maybe maybe it wasn't so bad. Get out the but I just like to think of it as like a kombucha sort of thing. And I yes. love a good kombucha. The, the mother in the bottom. Yeah, I think it's probably very similar to that. And if you can brew a kombucha in the house, I imagine mm-hmm. you could make a barley beer. Of and some that's kind. pretty low, you know. A little alcohol, but very low, but enough to, I guess, kill the bacteria. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so many, so many feast festivals. Um, but yeah, feasting on ducks, fish. I mean, I, I think looking into Salima Ikram's work on this, she's, she's done some work on the foodstuffs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, ducks, legs of cattle, sheep, goat. Yeah. Lots of vegetables. Yeah. Lots of fish. Um, but we also know, you know, cheese. We have that cheese, that giant, giant chunk of cheese they found a couple of years ago in Saqqara. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, lots of fish. I'm trying to think of desserts. We know of like, you know, they had dates, they had honey. So they could mm-hmm. easily make a lot of little date sweets and little date cookies. Honey and some something. of the desserts. Let me see. Um, tiger nut dessert. Oh, tiger nuts. Tiger so nuts. Tiger Nut is all fancy and bougie among the, mm-hmm. the keto folk right mm-hmm. now because it's high in protein. And I learned that my husband, who grew up in Hawaii, hates Tiger Nut with the passion, the heat of a thousand suns or more. Why? Because he had to weed the garden. His family made the money to send him to the private school that he was in by one, mortgaging the house, and two, making handmade lays out of jasmine oh, yeah, flowers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he always had to wake up early to do the chicken shit and spread the chicken shit around the flowers to pick the flowers, the, the jasmine buds to make the rope lay. And then, and there was another kind of flower they did. There was an open flower and you would get stung like one out of 10 times because there would be a bee inside. But like, but, um, the tiger nut was an invasive weed that was imported Mm -hmm. into Hawaii as, I mean, everything's imported into Hawaii. It's a volcanic rock out in the middle of the ocean. Right. But I mean, flora and fauna, but the tiger nut like took over and he hates tiger nut. And I remember Amr Shahat, who is uh, a um, ethnobotanist, was, is all about tiger nut in the ancient world and how you can just pick it out of the banks of the Nile and just eat it fresh out of the... And it's it's this um, nutty flavored rhizome, I believe. It's I like say, a I'm, grass. I'm Googling root. it right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a root or a grass mm-hmm. and it makes a dough. You can make bread out of it. And the keto Thanks. folks love to make bread. And yeah, of um, the sedge, it's of the sedge family. Yeah, it's a grass. So is it it's the like, you know, sedge BT? Is it the sedge? I guess it is. Oh my God, is that tiger nut that Remy hates? He hates Upper Egyptian kingship. I mean, that's a problem. Uh-oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell him, but I know he listens to the podcast, so he'll get to hear it. Oh, in it's real ed- time it's a for tuber, him. technically. 
Oh, yeah. Edible tubers, also called earth almonds or tiger nuts. It's the sedge. Oh, they use it to make horchata? Oh, I I wouldn't be surprised. I I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, Learning something new. I know. I mean, food is one of the most fun topics. And we could do, you know, I can pull out this book or we can get the authors of this book to come and and talk to us and we could do a whole um, food podcast because that sounds awesome. Very and cool. who doesn't want some boiled fenugreek? Yum. <laughs> boiled. Um, yeah. Lost. Yeah. Salted yeah. lupines. Here's the lupines. Yeah, you know the lupines. You've seen them on the street. I just didn't know that's what they were called. Mm-hmm. The little yeah. beans that have the skin and you take uh-huh. the skin off and they're salty and delicious. And I love them. They're yeah. so good. Melons were um, really big. That They're mm-hmm. one of the fruits that are native to Northeast Africa. And no chicken. Chicken is yes, mentioned no in the annals of Tutmos III as being this miraculous bird that lays an egg every day. And oh my gods, we got this bird. And so it's got to be goose or duck, um, yeah. quail, aquatic ostrich birds. maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We'll say. Yeah, no, yeah. no chickens are, I think, from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a recipe for boiled brain, you guys. Um, it's a very short recipe. I feel like it should be longer. I, guess <laughs> I feel like you more boil the brain. <laughs> I feel like it needs a lot of spices. It says boil water, add salt, pepper, then add the brain. Leave the boil for around sheep? 10 minutes. Um, it says of goat or cow. Okay. Well. Cut boiled brain into slices, add salt, pepper, and lemon juice. Sir, very simple. Very simple brain dish. I mean, if you're going to kill an animal, you better eat that whole damn thing. Yes, that is something that. Yeah, we I don't think do. eating brain only upsets me because of mad cow. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't want any neuron disorder. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah, right. but I, I mean, is it? You know, there's always that sentiment. I think, at least with like medieval Europe, that they had a lot more holidays and time off than we do today. And I think, yeah, especially Americans, we have very little time off compared to Europeans. Yeah. But do you think the Egyptians would that sentiment also hold true for them that they had more free time, be it holidaying or feasting and festivaling than than we do t- today? Absolutely, I think that there had to have been more more time off in the pre-modern world. Um, work was not like this, you know, eight to 10 hour thing that that capitalism has created. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that hard work wasn't done and that there, but I think it was more of a punctuated equilibrium. And you can actually see that for somebody who does craft specialization, like you or me, you work on textiles, I work on coffins. I think there there are ways to see in the craft that there was a hard push to get a lot of work done on something. Mm-hmm. And then- there was a, a rest and there was a lot more leisure and free time. And, you know, you can see this in, in a tomb painting that's left unfinished. You're like, why didn't they unfinish it? Well, or leave it unfinished. It's because work ethics or things being finished, the, there's not the same value in, um, in finishing, arguably, yeah. in, a, in a pre-modern world when in some ways, particularly the Egyptian world, the ongoing crafting was, was more the point. Yeah. Um, maybe not necessarily for a coffin, but for a, a tomb chapel. I uh-huh. think that was very much the, the yeah. point. So lots more time to hang out and drink beer. And, and you don't have lights, without electric lights. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to not have all these devices and to turn things off a little bit. What do so you do? We don't you just have to sit yeah. around and chat and tell stories. Look at the stars, you know, see how things are moving around and, well, and watch the is, moon. And this yeah. is totally, totally off topic. But the whole how our sleep schedules have changed since mm-hmm. lights became a thing where we used to sleep in two chunks. Right. And sleep as soon as it got dark and then wake up at like midnight-ish and hang out for a couple hours and then fall mm-hmm. back asleep. And elites are always able to stay up later and it is part of their elite hierarchical place. So if you are a very wealthy person anywhere in the pre-modern world and you have a fancy party and you have the money to light the oil lamps and keep mm-hmm. them lit until like three or four in the morning and you get to sleep in, you have servants to take care of you the next mm-hmm. morning. And this is part of what that conspicuous consumption and display is about to be able to show that we can keep our candles burning or our oil lamps burning all night long. And this is not, this is not a problem. So that's a, that's, now that kind of feasting is something that a peasant group couldn't get away with, but, um, nor would they want to, they have to wake up the next day and do all kinds of things. But 
the, an elite, more urban or palace type group is, is going to be a part of. And it's what we think of when we think of a big party. Uh-huh. We often think of staying up late at night. And that's what, when Betsy Bryan writes about um, the, the feast of drunkenness and staying up all night to see the god or goddess, we do not know how many people got to be a part of that experience. We certainly know the elites were there because they depict it in their, in their tomb chapels. But then who else was a part of it is debatable. Yeah. And there's lots of uh, literature on festivals and feasting that we can also share if you're interested. But good question, Marissa. Okay. Our next question is referencing something from last month's Q&A. And they're wondering about the first dynasty sacrifices. And I know Amber responded in the Discord with Dr. Rose Campbell's work. We had an episode, two two parts actually with her her work on the sacrificial retainer burials from the first dynasty. And they were asking if if there's any new evidence or new interpretations for how to understand these people, what the debate is. Okay, so I'll hit this one because it seems to be hitting close to home in our world, which is which is really interesting. And and it's not a problem. The the past is, you know, 10% of a jigsaw puzzle that we can't put together and we just are always working with incomplete information. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that there are conclusions made and then push back against those conclusions, new conclusions made, and it goes on like this. As far as human sacrifice of the first dynasty goes, the conclusions that that people were purposefully put to death come from Egyptologists like Walter Emery, um, uh, Flinders Petrie, who dug at Saqqara and Abydos, respectively, and found that because tombs were roofed simultaneously, that that amount of dead had to have been put in simultaneously, and thus they were sacrificial. Now, Petrie only kept the heads. I don't think Emery kept any of the the bodies of these retainer burials. Super frustrating. So to study these things, you have to go and Think. UCL, I think UCL has some. Oh, UCL and Cambridge, I think. Maybe. Yeah. And and these heads are in storage there, these skulls. Um, which is and, what Rose looked at. Which is what Rose Campbell did and looked at for her dissertation. And she is a bioarchaeologist trained and was able to determine, um, whereas previously Emery and, and Petrie had said there was no evidence of trauma, peri or post or pre or or anything. There was no clear evidence of trauma on the bodies and threw the bodies away. And Rose went and looked at the the skulls and determined that about 30% of the bodies show clear evidence of trauma that suggests blows to the head Mm -hmm. or other things. You can't, she couldn't determine strangulation. Um, There were some weird shit in the literature about the teeth being stained red. And that comes from strangulation, which I've been told by the bioarchaeologists around me that this is utter bullshit, but it's in the literature. So if you see that. um, Yeah. And any type of killing that was only, you know, not, I don't, I can't think of the words, but that wouldn't show on the bones, right? If it was just done to the flesh and the flesh is no longer there, you don't have evidence for it. So if they just like, I don't know, slip their neck, but it didn't cut all the way down to their, um, you know vertebrae or something you wouldn't right. know if their throat was slit or if they were stabbed or something like this in their gut you wouldn't see that um left for instance i don't know if the murder of ramses the third which has recently been proven with bioarchaeological uh-huh. investigation is only soft tissue or if it does I actually go to the vertebrae it goes to the vertebrae and you can see the cut okay interesting and then that's, he has this big the hack on his big toe too Oh, right. That's right. His foot's like his one foot is also like hacked with like an axe. Yeah. Hack his foot, then go for the throat. It's a two person job, these things, Um, particularly if it's women who are killing you or Mm. I don't I don't know. But um, right. Okay, so that's the that's the story for the human sacrifice. Right. And and there's those labels that seem to depict someone stabbing someone else that people then conflate to be like, that's a depiction of what was happening. There's a couple right. labels where it looks like some guy is like stabbing into another person that's like a captive with bound arms. Yes. And and it's 
hard. You know, Rose Campbell has worked on this and differentiated any kind of sacrifice from the smiting motif mm-hmm. that is so common and developed in Dynasty Zero. Um, Narmer is an example, but there are older examples of the smiting motif. This way of holding an enemy on their knees in front of you by the hair and you take a giant mace and you crush their skull. Mm-hmm. Rose has differentiated this kind of treatment of an enemy combatant or an outsider from the sacrificial burial that is a veiled kind of violence that happens in a in a an enclosed and more hidden space um and and then there's a ton of work that's been done and i'm not going to mention the different scholars but please investigate as a as a culture moves from a more uh, distributed power model into a more hierarchical kingship-based power model, human sacrifice or particularly retainer sacrifice in burial of that king becomes quite common. And you see this cross um, across all kinds of different uh, continents and cultures and times. So you'll see yeah. it in the Americas, you'll see it in China, you see it in Africa, you see it in Britain. I can in, think too of the, the Earth Three burials too. Mm-hmm. There was retainer sacrifice as well. Right. Or I can think of Cahokia in mm-hmm. the Ohio mounds. Or where is Cahokia? Is it Illinois? It's like right outside um, of St. Louis. Because the royal mounds, the burial mounds at Cahokia have um, these women like stacked up like cordwood in mm-hmm. the in the burial, and it's a very common thing to for a king to bury himself with his women, and he I will have more than one, sometimes with children, if the other children did not become king, um, with other retainers to take care of him in the next life. This is not uncommon. And it's something that the Britons used to do, the Vikings used to do, the Chinese used to do. I mean, it, it became such a problem in China that they were like, no, like really only the high elites get to do this, you guys. And they had to pass sumptuary laws not like, don't wear ostrich feathers, you guys, uh-huh. but can you please stop killing all the servants um, kind of thing. So this is this is something that happens everywhere. Um, now, there is a pushback against this within the Egyptological... Oh, and I'm, I'm missing one other person. Laurel Bestock yeah. is also... And David O'Connor and um, Matthew Adams. P- people who work at Abydos have also... And David O'Connor, of course, is not no longer with us. But... Um, Others who have worked at these sites do see evidence of human sacrifice, um, retainer sacrifice, a willing kind of sacrifice within the burial sites of the enclosure walls, um, the enclosures at Abydos and the tombs themselves. So uh-huh. it's it's really interesting. Um, but and it's muddied back, and it's muddied also by early excavators not recording things well and this there's a whole debate of whether they were all deposited at the same time were they right were each of the were they capped differently and it gets super messy because early excavators didn't record things well and so we're working with uh, in an incomplete um excavation reports and stuff as well so i mentioned at the beginning of this i said this is an in-house um discussion, debate um, that can sometimes get very hot in our own little world. And I'll tell you what that is. It's that um, Ali McCoskey, who was also a very skilled bioarchaeologist, is working with Christian Kruller, who was digging at Abydos at the burial site of Mernay. The queen regent, the king's mother, Den's ki- uh, mother, who, who was ruler um, in a lineup of kings, and she's listed on a king list and then is removed um, from the king list when it's no longer appropriate to have the king's mother there um, in that list. But according to Christian Kohler and to Ali McCoskey, the architectural evidence is by no means clear cut, mm-hmm. certainly not for Mernay's situation. And, and this is very interesting. However, I'll caution that Mernay is not a king. Mernay is not there as a transition of power. The king is dead, long live the king. Like, what are we going to do? Oh my God, are we going to lose our jobs? When Mernay dies, Den is king. Uh-huh. And and he's burying her. And maybe in such a circumstance, though there are people accompanying her, maybe things were done differently. But if Mernath's tomb can in any way be architecturally compared to other tombs in the Abydos horizontal stratigraphy, then Christian Kohler is going to have, you know, she's going to publish this and is already speaking on these topics. And we will have to grapple with this new analysis of the data. Uh-huh. Some data new, some data old. And and um 
it's a really interesting thing to get the likes of Jeff Newman and Ali McCoskey into a room to discuss human sacrifice. And we haven't thrown Rose in there because Rose is, is finished with her PhD and is out of the program. Je- but Jeff like, and Rose have been talking too behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. But I bet it gets pretty hot, you know? Um, Jeff and Rose agree, of course, but then Ali does it. And it gets, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting. This is what the Academy is made of. This is what it should be made of. And this is the kind of debate that we have to let go forth and not try to shut down and be like, oh, we all, and we always also have to keep in mind that when you're dealing with subject matter like human sacrifice, or uh, let's throw out another hot one, like um, uh, infant um, killing or, um, or female genital mutilation or, or whatever, something that is considered very problematic and, and that we have in our modern day have very moral ideas about yeah right or that that somebody who identifies as a person from wherever is going to be considered uh made less than human or problematically human or immoral or whatever by having been associated with this practice then there are people who will say oh no this never happened you know i uh-huh. see this a lot with the amarna period uh-huh. where when gretchen dabs was working on a, a brilliant bioarchaeologist was working on the burials of of children and adults in uh, separate yeah. locations okay. that showed um acute and chronic trauma malnutrition um really looking at bodies like like work camp gulag type situations mm-hmm. the pushback um by people egyptian and otherwise who wanted the amarna period to be what they thought it was a puppies and rainbows summer of love 1969 beauty monotheism. 1968 monotheism like in all of its beauty um, said, no, no, you're doing it wrong. That's not what the bodies show. And I remember Gretchen Dabson talking with her um, personally. And she's like, this is what the bodies show. Mm-hmm. I have seen it in Bosnia. I have seen it here mm-hmm. too. And so I- I'm going to believe the bioarchaeologists mm-hmm. in the same way. I mean, how do you, um, else do you build a city yeah. in like seven years? Right. And make but, the the building blocks big enough for like a small yeah. human to carry. <laughs> and, and what do you think is going to happen when you have the king throwing out Solid uh-huh. gold trinkets to his uh-huh. to his favorite and most loyal elites. I mean, they're going to use that some of it, most of it, to enrich themselves, and then other things to pay the people who are working for them. But this yep. is not, you know, these things are. Don't ever say the past is a political. Don't ever say the past is a emotion is unemotional. These things all touch us in our own identities today, and this topic is a hot one. It's a very emotional topic. It makes people very uncomfortable. It's something we need to be very cognizant cognizant yeah. of when we're when we're discussing it. So just know this one is in process uh-huh. and is um is being actively discussed. And it's something where, you know, if you're able to follow the literature or, or you have practitioner friends in social media and you can follow this, it's it's really interesting to see. Yeah. And and yeah, maybe with uh Christian Kohler's work we'll get at least some good sound archaeological data. One Absolutely. way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, I was just discussing with Ali McCoskey, like what the superstructure was on these right. Abydos tombs and just the disagreement there on yes, what so kind is. of a superstructure there would have been is hugely problematic. And the reconstructions of the superstructure of the tomb of Mernaith that I've been showing, I think are wrong. So I'm, I'm waiting for a lot of um, revisions and, and, uh, corrections of past yeah. work that I think will really help us to to work with this data better. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting question. Yeah. Okay, on to a more, more fun question. <laughs> um, Mike asks, if they end up making a new mummy movie, how um, would you like to see the film made? Are there certain things you would be hoping for them to include? One, I uh, don't make a new mummy movie Brendan Fraser is the best and we don't I don't like this Hollywood whatever's going on in Hollywood they just like remake movies like there's so many good books that you could make into a movie and writers out there that probably have great ideas now that the strike's over why is there this push to re just remake movies all the time that especially when they're good originally like don't if it's good they doesn't need fixed I don't think we're going to get anything new anytime soon, particularly post-strike in this time of 
of late, late Hollywood capitalism. Like everyone's betting on the sure thing. And the sure yeah. thing is a Marvel comic Marvel or, a DC or Disney. comic. And the mummy fits into that rubric. And so the fairy tale, the whatever, the story that is a tale as old as time. And then we're going to tell it again and again and again until things get decentralized and deconstructed in Hollywood in particular. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see because a mummy movie or, or an Egypt movie demands uh, some serious uh, money spent for special effects. And if you don't have and that, scenery. that's exactly like, OK, you and I could get if we had any skill, we could get our iPhones out and we could make some sort of a fun film that could, you know, people would be like, oh, my God, it's beautiful. And it's set in Cairo, whatever. Our sound would be shit. But um, <laughs> I, I'm going to speak for myself, but we yes, have the cameras and we have better cameras and good sound and we can only do so much about the motorcycles that go past. But like, <laughs> um, but I think I, I, I'm not like, look at, look at what they just did with Cleopatra. How many Cleopatra movies do we need? And then who's well, going to be another one, right? Yeah, but I don't think so. Have they, do you know what's happening with the Gal Gadot Cleopatra? Um, because, you know, I remember writing three years on Twitter as was, that this is a horrible idea, that you can't take an Egyptian tale, whether it's an Egyptian woman or not. We do not know who Cleopatra's mother was. I'll repeat it again. She could have been Egyptian, um, but she wasn't Gal Gadot. And politically, especially now during what's happening in Gaza, um, I, I really don't think that this casting choice or that film can even move forward with yeah. the political climate that we're in. I think it's yeah. got to just be stopped. This is my opinion. Yeah. Um, I so, just am like, there's so many other more interesting stories Yeah. that could be made that why do we need like, I don't know, I think we all agree like the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra, though very problematic, is like a solid movie. And like, yeah. just like leave it there. Just like the Brendan Fraser mummy was solid. Yeah. And then they decided to do the stupid Tom Cruise one, which is awful. I liked the Brendan Fraser campy, super campy, like, let's just let that live on. Right, right. Speaking of which, we're all going to go to the Getty on December 10th, right? And okay. watch Stuart Smith talk about his consulting in that film. So I think it's going to be in the Getty Auditorium. We get to watch the movie and then watch a Q&A with Stuart. So yeah. I think that's going to be pretty damn fun. But the, the other problem, Jordan, is that the Egyptians are like, can you please stop denigrating our ancestors and making them into these scary creatures? Yep. Can we not? Can we stop showing the dead bodies all the time? And the mummy is always set in a Victorian, a late Victorian <laughs> English sort of setting. British can we, people. <laughs> can we yeah. stop with the colonial rape of Egypt? Can we yep. find some other opportunities to tell stories about antiquities that are emically driven Egyptian um, voices that are not just, you know, the white people coming in and taking. And I think um, that would be that would be a really useful way there's, to frame a new storytelling. Agreed. There's a couple there's a series of books by P. Jelly Clark um, that are set in a speculative Cairo, where as if um, Egypt was never colonized and like what that Egypt would be. And it's um, one of the books is called Master of Jinn, and it's it takes from both ancient Egypt, but then also Islamic and Arabic um, monsters and demons and genie and all this kind of stuff into this as if they were real. Um, and I would that I would love to see. And there's like a detective noir element to it also and like a little steampunky Cairo, non-colonized, but with magic being real. And I think that would be a really cool show. Um, yeah. But that, I think that's where I would like to see it to go. I don't want any more of this like archaeologists finding treasure because that's not accurate. Yeah. And it perpetuates, I think, bad ideas and like the Victorian whole thing as well. And yeah, mummies being vengeful. I think it would be cool to incorporate ancient Egyptian religion or ideas about the world into a like a cool sci-fi fantasy speculative something but yeah. that's where i would like I mean, to see it go yeah i mean you know i have many ideas and i am working on some of yes. them we'll see but um but yeah there's the, and they did make a new mummy movie and it had tom cruise in it so mm -hmm. you know that that did happen lest we forget yeah. i would also really like a 
if anyone has watched The Great on Hulu, which uh, is a not based on true facts comedy about Catherine the Great. I would, and it's like really campy and ribald, Amber, and all this stuff. Ribald, ribald. And I would love to see the inner workings of the Egyptian palace, but with very British humor, like the priests gossiping and making fun of the king doing something silly during a ritual or something like this. I think that would be a really fun um, show as well. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, next question we have is from Noir88. Oh, it's about your book. After reading your book, When Women Ruled the World, I was wondering if the Egyptians would have continued with practicing the practice of keeping power by incest. Do you think that Egypt would have survived the collapse in the 20th dynasty? Incest wasn't so bad in the 19th and 20th. So so incest actually has very little to do with the Bronze Age collapse, mm -hmm. but incest has much more arguably to do with, with repeated collapses within the 12th and 18th dynasty. For the 12th, it's a little harder to prove, mm -hmm. but it does seem to be the case that you have kings marrying their sisters and, and other potential relatives. And you do see the end of the 12th dynasty. Like it's everything's going so well. It's going swimmingly. You've got Samwasra III taking over um, Nubia up to the third, fourth cataract. You have Amenemhat III continuing that. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And you have the ignominious rule of a woman, Nefru Sobek. And I think you could say incest is, is a part of that. And then in the 18th dynasty, Amenhotep I is the, the sonless or daughterless, childless king for whom a new king has to be found. It was the first has to be brought in mm -hmm. to be anointed as the next king, even though he's not a direct relation and he is older than the Amenhotep I king. And we know the 18th dynasty started out with two full brother-sister marriages that produced offspring in succession. And and then, of course, Hatshepsut comes in after that to save the 18th dynasty. And you have all kinds of of many collapses within the 18th dynasty owing to incest. But at the same time, incest also allows women to have extraordinary power. And, and if you get to the chapter on Nefertiti, I hope you see that I argue that Akhenaten produced Tutankhamun with one of his daughters. Many people are like, who was Tutankhamun's mother? Was it Nefertiti? Was it Kia? I'm like, it was neither of them. It was, it was one of Akhenaten's daughters. Which one? Um, I'm not going to try to make that argument. Mm. I don't think it really matters, though I wish these girls had their own individual identities in a real way, but they they married their father. They were elevated to great royal wife as an appendage of his ideological kingly power. And Tutankhamun, I don't think, was the first baby born of this incestuous um, father-daughter union because well, in, the great, in the royal tomb, in the royal wadi, there's an image of a dead baby and the whole royal family is gathered around it. So I think that, uh, and we know Tutankhamun was a product of incest. And we do yep. not have any information that Nefertiti was related to Akhenaten um, or that Kia was related to Akhenaten. Why no one else has suggested this, I do not understand. And that Tut married either his sister or in your uh, summary, his aunt. And then they had children, which we knew, know were stillborn. So which would his sister also, slash aunt, aunt, his sister slash, aunt. which would yeah, then, yeah. and their children were stillborn. So that would yeah. also seem to indicate some type of uh, genetic issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's a really cool thing. And I've written more about this. I, I did write about this in When Women Rule the World, when I get to Tawastra, that what was a situation of palace-led intrigue, female power, and family-led po political dynamics in the 19th dynasty becomes a military community of practice. It becomes the generals running the show. And women do not have much place in a military community of practice. Yeah. They're, they're there um, not as political keepers of power, but as um, wombs and, and sexual um, uh, partners and, and other things. And if you look at the 19th and 20th dynasty, yes, you have Tawasra in a time of great trauma placed as a regent. It is unusual, but you don't see that in the 20th 
until you get to the end of the 20th. And who do we have there? But uh, Nojmet, who it was probably a princess of one of the late Ramesid kings. I don't know which one. Um, And that's to be determined, like a Ramses VI or something like Mm -hmm. that, maybe. Grew up at Paramses in, we can only imagine the most opulent of, of like, late Ramesid splendor, right? This Baroque over the top splendor. And then she ends up marrying two, what we think, this is difficult history, but it is quite possible, two Libyan or Sea People's mm. warlord generals in succession, uh-huh. Pionk and then Harihor. Uh-huh. And and then if Penegem I is her son with Pionk, her son becomes high priest of Amun slash king after um, Harihor's death. And she's there as the only elite trained for the power in the position. So she's there at the end of the Bronze Age, probably not a product of incest, certainly not that we can see, but somebody who was married out in a way to try to save a very delicately balanced political situation when everything is falling apart mm-hmm. and the military is the only way through and kind of sent to Thebes and is a real power broker there. So, so it's not want your about next incest book on. at all. I think I actually I may have given it away, but I think that might be it. I think I think I, that might be it. Yeah, yep. that's I, what I was thinking. I, I was like the Libyans. I know. Did the... you tell by the way I was talking about it that I'm like I was super like she's excited. thought about this. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have thought about it, and it's a great story, and it links together all the things that we're working on right now. We're working with polarization, political mm-hmm. decentralization, lack of agreement, warlording money being the god that everyone worships and only money yep. and and mass immigration um mass destabilization identity who is who and where do we fit what does it mean to be egyptian or american or german or whatever and all of these things then who comes in to try to make things right but a woman <laughs> and and i and who gets the credit for it How, do we discuss nojmen in this way hell's no it's just, it's always when you said it i yeah. thought of her like coffin and stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. indeed yeah so anyway, so this is this is on on the brain, and I think um, proposal forthcoming. So mm-hmm. we'll, I'll I get think it I think too up. with the with the incest question, unlike European incest, like when we're thinking like the Habsburgs or something, and the line mm-hmm. dies out, or uh, in a family member is infertile or something like this. The Egyptian, the king, had a lot of other children to choose from, right? Yeah, his even if his chief wife was his sister also yeah. was married to a bunch of other women. So there was at least it's, options for the Egyptian king. Um, it's such a good point, Jordan, because it helps one to understand how first cousin marriage can be so much more destructive, so much more quickly in a monogamous yeah, yeah. lineage, because then it's you. it just keeps going and going and going such that you get the hemophiliac um, prince of, of Nicholas II. Yeah. Yes. Or, or you get Charles II of the Habsburgs, mm-hmm. whereas you would be like, but wait, full brother, sister marriage, what the hells? But that's not his only wife. And unless he himself is sterile and the product of that incest, if he is able to reproduce with a woman wholly disconnected to his own family, then it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And in the 18th dynasty, you see that, right? You see that Tutmos III gives the kingship to Amenhotep II seems choosing him quite specifically mm-hmm. as not a product of incest to move things off into that more healthy direction. Not necessarily because it's more healthy, but maybe because he was sick of all the women telling him what to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but it's, it, it's, it's super interesting to see how functional that is on a, as a short-term uh-huh. Uh-huh. strategy of keeping power in the family. Yeah. Okay. Our final question is also from Noir88. And this one's fun, and I think you'll have a lot to say about it. Uh, did the Egyptians save money to finance their funeral and to buy all the amulets, the coffins, all the tomb goods, et cetera? And if so, at what age did this start? Um, this is interesting. Let's say, for example, a person of upper middle class, so a higher status, just got of age to make their own income. Would they start saving money? Would they start thinking forward? We think of like, oh, start putting money into your 401k for retirement. Um you know, I think this question came up at the Getty show for the Book of the Dead. When would you purchase your Book of the Dead? Would you wait until later on? Would you start building your tomb if, say, if you're one of these Dira Medina guys? 
Do we have any evidence for this? Because again, it's these are great questions, but do we have any uh, references for when people are buying these things or start? Yeah. Okay. So first I want you to take the word class out of the question because the word class implies a shared power amongst more people in society than ancient Egyptian society, certainly in the New Kingdom, would give. And if you take the word class out or upper middle class or lower middle class or something like that, then you're dealing with a society, though we fought against exactly this um, rubric in my book, Egyptian Society, with um, Danny uh, and, and Nadia, Think of a more pyramidal society. Think of an elite society that is the top 5% or less as the only ones who have the extra resources to put into non-essential commodities for death uh -huh. and to display them and, and who actually need to put non-essential, um, to buy non-essential resources. You know, this uh -huh. isn't a coat to keep you warm. This is a coat to keep you warm for thousands of years and <laughs> forever. Exactly. In the next life that you show to everyone being buried in a hole in the ground to show everyone that you can do it. Your, your family can't afford it, that your ancestor is worthy of this. And everyone who doesn't get this thing feels the exclusion keenly. Uh -huh. You must also put yourself into the mindset that less than 5% of ancient Egyptians would have been mummified let alone placed in a coffin. So for example, the Theban tomb one, which was discovered partially intact, though really horribly uh -huh. um, emptied and not, not um, documented in any clear way and coffins out of that tomb were lost and don't get me started. But the mummies that we do have from Theban tomb one in the Cairo Museum show that the organs were not removed. The mummification that occurred uh, when they were placed wrapped in these beautiful coffins, painted coffins, artisanally painted coffins, um, as members of an artisanal group. They, they were washed, they were cleaned, but they didn't have their stomach, their liver, their intestines, their lungs removed. They, and you can smell it when you're in their presence, in uh, these mummies' presence. And you're like, oh, these are not, and it's Salima Kron who's done more work on these mummies. So, so that's your artisanal status group, which is, I would call them a lower elite status group. And if they can afford to make a mummy, but not to fully mummify, then you have this gradient of who gets to be mummified and who doesn't. And I want you to put yourself into the mindset of a society where some people's bodies get to live on forever and other people's bodies must decay. Most bodies must decay. 95% or more are going to decay. You might be able to put them directly into the desert sands so that they'll last. But you know, as soon as that get exposed, um, and the I've bones. seen it, I've seen, yeah, the bones bleach, the, the skin and the hair and nails fall off. The humanity that was kept intact will then just fall away into dust and become a part of the desert sands. And to imagine that you're dealing with that kind of a society in which some people are safeguarded for generations in um, tomb spaces with coffins and, and magical protections and, and all of these things that they can afford and others don't get that and a return back to the earth means that this book of the dead funerary game, and I'm not using the word game to denigrate the religion associated with it. I'm using the word game to highlight the social implications, but that this game was one for the rich and the rich only, and it helped them maintain their power. So once, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I yeah. was going to say, so kind of to, to Noir's point, there would be no saving because the people were so rich, they didn't need to save for these things. It was just expected of them to, to engage in this game of competition, elite competition, and yeah. that it would have been a gradient about, you know, how much they could afford if they could, which coffin set they could buy. And... And yeah, and presumably this would start while they were alive because they have to start commissioning these pieces and they take some time to be made, uh, the tomb to be built or something like this too. Yeah, yeah. And there are these instructions mm. um, and you can pick up an instruction and it says like something, and I can't remember which one it is, Mary Carey something's middle kingdom one, make ready your place in the graveyard um, and make sure that you build it from, from freshly hewn stones, not from stones from somebody else's mm -hmm. tomb. But you... 
in the same way that I suppose, like, say you're very rich in the United States today, then you might be a member of a private club. And in that private club, um, it's not like you, everyone gets Donald Trump's book, Art of the Deal. That is written for the poor. That is written for the masses to, as a kind of hoodwink, the, the sort of American mythology that you too can be rich, which is utter bullshit and mm. is being revealed in our late capitalist society. But a real billionaire knows you go to some private club, your members, your, your friends and associates and colleagues with other billionaires or multimillionaires, and you learn from each other how to shield your money. How, from taxes and, and other problems, how to divorce your wives, how to write a prenup for your kids, how to, how to, how to, right? How to maintain your wealth and power. Um, and the Egyptians had the same things, but they wrote them down in these instructions, you know, act this way, uh -huh. be this way, um, train your children this way, get your tomb together. Because if you don't, your family will not have the prestige and the place in your local community and in your larger Egyptian or even international community that you need it to have. And those, um, yeah, the, those things are important. Like imagine if you have the royal family and you don't have a wedding that everyone can consume on television, then they're going to get less money. They're mm -hmm. not going to be funded um, with the largesse of taxpayer dollars. But if they do get funded with taxpayer dollars, they better put on a goddamn show and it better be big and everyone gets to see it and be a part of it. It was the same in ancient Egypt. So mm -hmm. when there was a death, it was party time. And it sounds weird. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> but how does this work? But it's like a royal wedding. Mm -hmm. If of a big man in your, in your village or your um, urban space, like say you're in Thebes or Memphis mm -hmm. or Heliopolis or Tanis or whatever, died, um, then everything would stop and you would all prepare for a days long feast of mourning. Yes. Uh -huh. But also a redistribution of goods and yeah. a reallocation of powers to the next generation v visually shown the the great man is dead. Here's the next great man, but also a reification of where everyone belonged, who was in what place, who wow. was servant, who was served. And all of these things are reified in that festival in which everyone ate really well and got really drunk and enjoyed life. And then you said goodbye with great respect to the elder and, and moved them on their way, but simultaneously created a superhero ancestor who could work on behalf of the millionaire left the left. So, so it's, you well, know, when there's you look, the whole, yeah, there's the whole ahead. saying that's like, when do families, extended families come together, friends, whatever, it's for weddings or funerals. And yeah. Funerals tend to take, you know, at some certain times, like there's more funerals perhaps than weddings. Yeah. And it's like the one time that everyone feels the obligation, the social obligation to go to an event. You know, otherwise you can make excuses for busy, this or that. But that for weddings or funerals, there's a social obligation that you attend, that you, you know, what gift giving and debt creation is being made. Um, the structures, what the hosts have to do, all these things. And so I feel like weddings and funerals are, are archaized and are more traditional even in our modern society because of the social, all the social factors that are condensed into them of reifying positions and identities and all these things. Um, and Absolutely. You have to make these things conservative, right? You have to do it right and make sure that everyone sees that you're doing it in the expected and traditional way. Like if you're going to do a magical spell, you don't just make this shit up as you go. Yeah. You do it according to the formula so that you get like the right good old Catholic mass. Exactly. And, and I don't want to give the impression that Egyptian elite society was this homogenous monolith that never changed. There was elite replacement. There were shakeups. There, the funerals of the 18th dynasty were very different from the elite funerals of the 19th dynasty. And I don't want to give the impression that there wasn't ever a, an attempt to move up in status by using the uh -huh. funeral. There was. And you can see it in a coffin, which is why I love doing the work that I do. You can actually see somebody, maybe not saving their money, but kind of stretching, maybe Choice. saving them. Yeah. Making choices 
that show they didn't have all the money that they wanted available to them, that they could be like, look, you can either get blue paint or green paint. Which do you want? I want blue paint. I'm going to put it everywhere. Or look, you can get you can get orpiment or you can get whatever. And, And certain choices made to try to get the most bang for your buck. And to try to compete as much with your status group while understanding you can't compete with the person who can gild their entire coffin. So you're not going to be able to. But there is evidence in the funerary data that social statuses can change, that you can move up Uh in in society, particularly the 19th dynasty in a time of Ramses II's populism. Uh And, And people are getting positions of power without the old family perhaps intellectual backgrounds that they may have required to be part of such a group in the 18th. By the 19th, they can, they can jump into this. And, and you can see it in the coffins, which makes it that much more interesting. So, you know, I could talk about this all day, but um, yeah, did and, I miss anything? No, I was going to, you just made me think of two with um, people moving up as their life is going on. So with the tombs, you can see this too, right? So we know that tombs were started at X point in someone's life because they have certain set of titles. And then as the tomb's being built and they get more titles or they're moving up within a like a hierarchy of the temple or whatever, you see the new titles appear elsewhere in the tomb. And the old mm-hmm. titles are still in the area that they finished, you know, maybe a couple of years ago. And so you can see that the tombs are being worked on over a series of years um, as the person's still alive and still um, moving up in the structures or whatever and things like that. So... We do know they were started during life. When and how this works, it probably was a very case-by-case personal basis. Yeah, But, you know, being a very rich person at the top of society is, I mean, it's awesome, right? What do they say? It's great to be king or whatever. Uh But but to stay there and maintain that place, you have to do some work, which is why rich people enculturate their children to behave like rich people. They have their their parties, whatever rite of passage it is, has to be of a certain type. The way they dress has to be a certain type. Their education has to be of a certain type. Uh And that enculturation is a lifelong thing. And it is meant to sustain over the long term a series of generations. And and that is that is how it works. So any of these parties, it's not for the individual. It is for the family and it is for generations down the line. Uh And and that's the way it has to work. So um, yeah, it's it's when you're thinking, oh, how do you have to save and do you have to do this? The answer is yes. And a rich family is always thinking of these things in advance, thinking multi-generationally and thinking how to maintain their power by using these opportunities of display. Did they think about it this cynically? I doubt it. Yeah. I don't think we think about our weddings this cynically, but I can't, there, there have been a countless arguments between parent and child where somebody screams, this wedding is not for you. Uh-huh. Or isn't this wedding? Is my wedding? No, yep. it's not your wedding. It's not your wedding. For everyone else. <laughs> it's for everyone else's for the good of the family and putting that best Well, especially forward. for a funeral because the person's dead. Yeah. So it's yeah. for the deceased, but who's it actually for? It's for everyone else who's still alive, right? Yeah. And that's the so. main point I make in Recycling for Death, or at least I hope I do, is that all of this display, yes, it's to transform the dead, but it's also to pass the goods, the wealth to the next generation mm-hmm. and to do so visually, documentedly, and and in a witnessed manner so that you know that it all is about inheritance. It's all about who gets what. The one who buries inherits. That is a law of the Pharaoh, according mm-hmm. to a papyrus found at Dira Medina. And that is what when you get down to it, it's about money. It's about passing the shit down to the next generation and making sure that everyone sees, oh, it's that brother. Okay. We see how this is going to work. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. 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 So lots of great questions. All kind of a, a baby theme about feasting, festivals, display. So lots of good. I mean, I guess we're in the holiday season, so it's all on our minds as well. Wondering what the yeah. ancient Egyptians were doing with it. Yeah. Um, so, so great questions. Uh, thank you to our supporters for sending those in. Um, and again, as always, we really appreciate your support and we couldn't do this without you. And, but yeah, uh, you know, wh- what we produce is free. Our Substack is free. Our podcast is free. But 
But if you can support us and be a patron at a higher level, you will support Jordan. You will support Amber. And you will help us to be, because I can't do this with my job and Jordan can't do this alone and Amber can't do this. It takes the three of us. But, and and somebody, when somebody's like, I have this work to do, somebody picks it up. But there's no way that this could happen without the patron support. And if you become a patron, then you get to join us in Zooms where you get to ask a question live. Um, you get to have discussions with us. You get to ask and contribute questions to this um, kind of Q&A. And um, we'll think of other perks that we can throw at our at our patrons who are really helping me to cut checks for Amber and Jordan so that we can keep this thing going because because Lord knows we don't have time to do it singly and I don't have time to maintain it on my own. So thank you. Yeah, thank you all. And this is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.